Coming up on this episode. Changing climate is impacting on so many things. Look at all parameters that define development. Each of them is being hit by climate change. With that knowledge, I mean, I, I, I think we have enough guidance so far from uh, what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has found and what is coming out of the, all these negotiations that happen every year. There's always disagreement on this and that, but the broad message is that climate is changing and people need to do something. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Public Health Musings. I'm so excited to have you on, and I would like to encourage you to uh, subscribe, whether you're listening to the audio version or if you're listening and watching on YouTube. I'm glad that you could join us today. I have a great treat for this month, uh, all the way from Kenya. I'm so excited to be talking to Dr. Ivan Skitui, who is an independent consultant with extensive experience, over 20 years in sustainable energy, climate and development, as well as a green economy. He has also um, taught and engaged in research as well as mentorship, and has also done policy engagement at the local and international levels. Uh, before he went into private practice, he was the director of the East Africa Institute, which is a think tank at Aga Khan University. And he was there for about 10 years as a senior program specialist, also in climate change programming with the Canada's International Development Research Center. He has a PhD in atmospheric chemistry from the University of Nairobi, an MBA in strategic management from Africa Nazarene University, and an MSc in environmental chemistry from University of Nairobi and BSc in chemistry from Moy University. And he's also served on various uh, boards at the local and international organizations. Um, and he's an associate of the Institute for Climate Change and Adaptation of the University of Nairobi. We are so excited to have you, Dr. Kitui. Everyone join me in welcoming Dr. Kitui to the show. Yay! Thank you, Caroline. So I have heard so much about you and your work. And now with all the hype that's having, happening with um, climate change, I really wanted to talk to someone um, from an international level and especially from the continent. And you, know, you are both an international development professional as well as a climate change professional. Tell us how you got here. You know, I see you have a lot of experience and uh, you know, work in chemistry, uh, atmospheric chemistry. How did you decide to get to, you know, to do that and to major in that area um, and your interest in climate and development? Thank you, Caroline, for that. It was a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, um, actually, it all goes back to um, when I was collecting my uh, PhD uh, data in Zimbabwe. Uh, but before I reached there, maybe um, um, I could say I left my, when I did my master's, it was in uh, chemistry, uh, environmental chemistry, but then I was offered something else that was very different. You know, I had done chemicals in uh, food and agriculture, and here I was being offered a fellowship to go to Germany to go and study atmospheric chemistry. Uh, so I said, 
should I take it? Should I not? I say, I'm going for it. It's chemistry at the end of the day. So let me go. Um, so while there, I set up with my professors. I went to, I was coming to Africa to collect data because I was working on uh, the emission of gases from fuel wood, from cooking charcoal, you know, and so on. So we wanted to know to what extent uh, do these kind of practices across Africa contribute to local atmospheric chemistry uh, systems and also to climate change. So that is ideally what we set out to do. And uh, of course, I had to spend hours and hours sitting with women who are cooking. I mean, as you know, in this part of the world, I mean, um, uh, our, our mothers and sisters and grannies are the, you know, they're the main cooks. And so this was in Zimbabwe and Kenya. So sitting with about 300 of them in different homes and fires, you know, it was exciting watching how they start the fires, how they cook the food, how we eat. I used to join them in some of the meals and how the fire just dies off. So during the four or five hours I spend in each house, I used to have this dialogue with the ladies and then they tell me, you scientists keep coming here to collect data. You are not the first. We have many who come and they interview us for some minutes and they go, but they never come back to tell us anything. Our lives never change at all. Uh, nobody ever comes and says, you remember that study so-and-so did? We are now coming to bring this change because of that. Nothing ever happens. So is yours gonna be different? Are you coming to help us uh, you know, to get out of this smoke and stuff like that. So that thing always pained me because 67 out of 300 homes that I sat in, I was asked that question. So I imagined that this was, um, what, what do you call it? These guys are fatigued by we guys, scientists going to ask them questions uh, endlessly and never going back to communicate what we found. Uh, so that is actually something that turned my trajectory. When I left Zimbabwe, came to Nairobi, did the same in Kenya, and then went back to Germany. When I was analyzing my data and traveling one city to another, presenting my results in different conferences, I kept asking myself, am I going back to do the hard science again? Or should I go back to Africa and solve this problem? So that thing lingered on my mind until um, uh, I got, I actually got um, an invite to go to um, National Atmospheric Research Center in Boulder, Colorado for a two year postdoc on hard sciences again, uh, gases and their transformation in the atmosphere. And I had another opportunity to come to the African Center for Technology Studies here in Nairobi to do policy research in climate change. So here I was making that tough decision. Should I go to the US and do this thing? Or should I just go back to Africa and just deal with African stuff? So to me, it was easy at that point now to jump ship. So that was a turning point. I said bye-bye to uh, uh, physical sciences. And I joined a team at African Center, which was working on climate change. And so this was an economist and a lawyer 
you know, who are working on climate change, um, but they needed some scientific uh, uh, input. So I joined the team and it was complete. We worked together with them. Um, we, with people like Professor Patricia Mbote, maybe you know her. Um, she, she was the lawyer who was on the team and others. Anyway, so to me, that was the beginning of what has turned out to be somebody working at the interface of science and policy. So that's where I've been for the last uh, several years and uh, where I was struggling to teach chemistry, okay, back at the university after my PhD. And um, because I was working partly for African Center for Technology Studies, partly for the University of Nairobi, teaching chemistry, I used to struggle, you know, to prepare my lessons and, uh, you know, you just go to teach the theory and you jump out and go and join the NGOs in meetings and so on. So um, I ended up, uh, <clears throat> after six years, I took my sabbatical. Then I joined IDRC of Canada, um, which is a funding agency. Um, so I spent 10 years with IDRC um, as a senior program specialist working in Asia and Africa. Ideally, I was covering South Asia and, and Central Asia and uh, the rest of Africa, um, where I was assigned and where we were funding climate change projects. Um, and that's me. Wow, that's that's a really compelling story. And I can relate, you know, when I go to Kenya or in other African countries and it's the same thing, you know, are you coming back? Why do why are you doing this? And it just tags at your heart um, and the conflict that goes in our minds, we go through in our minds, trying to make a difference, but also an, an income, you know, and sometimes it feels like they're two parallel um, roads and Absolutely. Know, somehow they don't, they don't seem to meet. To meet um, yes. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm really inspired and jazzed that you made that commitment and that decision to you know, go back to Kenya and make a difference in, in the work that you're doing. And so we'll talk a little bit about that work, um, where you now focus on climate and development, and then you also talk about sustainable energy and then green and circular economy. I mean, there's some terminologies here that I am not familiar with, and I, I know a few other people are not. And so I'm so glad we can have this chance to talk more about that. So to the lay person, why should we be concerned about climate? You know, it just in the past few years, it's suddenly become such a big deal and it uh, has received its share amount of opposition. Uh, what, why is climate so important? Yeah, uh, that's a very nice question. Of course, we keep getting this kind of questions when we talk to the old folk um, back home and whatever. Firstly, I would say that, um, you know, if whenever I meet the lay people, um, one thing I tell them is that um, the changes we are witnessing, uh, you know, the weather patterns, the erratic rainfall, the drying rivers, you know, these are things they can associate with. Uh, shifting growing seasons, you know, they are seeing, they are no longer seeing, uh, you know, those ants getting out of the ant holes uh, and the, uh, the, 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 uh, some insects that fly during certain months are no longer flying during those months and so on. So this is something that they easily relate with. And then um, the other thing is uh, uh, human activity. 
we try to tell them that it's human activity that is primarily causing this whole uh, climate change problem. And then we try to explain to them how the burning of fossil fuels in the vehicles and in industry and so on is contributing to this. Um, we don't have to go to the depths of who polluted more, uh, when and how, but you just let them know that it's because of the burning of fossil fuels um, that that is happening since pre-industrial um, times. And uh, thirdly, you also tell them that things are going to get worse because what is already in the atmosphere is enough to uh, uh, you know, cause significant calamity uh, if nothing changes, if leaders are not going to you know, take that step of uh, you know, changing things and so on. And um, they will end up with the whole range of uh, impacts that um, you know, have been put in the media, you know, sea level rise, or, um, uh, you know, shifting disease patterns, like in Kenya here, we keep telling them malaria is no longer a preserve of Western Kenya. It's now shifting slowly, heading towards the Mount Kenya side uh, because of the temperature change. And, uh, you know, this is something that, you know, raises eyebrows, but, you know, that's the reality. Reduced water supplies, you know, prices of commodities are going to shift because production is going down, yields are failing. We are having to import uh, lots of food now. Uh, maize we are importing from Tanzania, too much of it from Uganda. Some comes even as from as far as Mexico and so on. Uh, so those are the kind of things that we tell them are going to happen. They've even witnessed other impacts like migration. You know, people have left their homes, literally, to go to other places. We've, we have these cases uh, in Northern Kenya which we can you know, talk about. And that has brought conflict. Even grazing of animals and so on, people have gone to graze in areas where um, you know, they are not wanted you know, in foreign lands. Yeah. So they are thought to be intruders and therefore it becomes a, a serious challenge. Then I'll tell them, you know, they tell me now, what do we do? How can we uh, adapt to this situation? So, then we tell them what they can do in the long run. They don't have to keep planting maize every year in, year out, year in. It doesn't produce anything, you know. They need to change plant crops that are short cycled, like two to three months, and then you harvest. Things that are drought resi uh, resistant. Um, and also use the meteorological information, this just climate information to plan their planting cycles. And then that way they will be able to adapt to the circumstances. Wow, that's really um, <coughs> interesting information. And we often don't think about, especially human activities. Um, you know, we'll defend our, ourselves and say, oh, there, there's so many other problems. When you think about fossil fuel um, and looking at all the impoverished communities and the limited access they have to, I would say, clean energy, if you will. Um, so, but we'll talk more about that when we try and figure out um, some of the um, solutions to that. So, you know, you you gave us a really good idea why we should be concerned about climate. So, why have the changes in climate only recently become important? Um, because I know my grandmother and grandfather used to have those discussions, but why is it now? an issue that we all want to bring to the forefront. Yeah, thanks, Caroline. Um, 
I think it, it's always been important, uh, but only to certain circles um, where you and I belong. But uh, for, the, for the rest of the common man, actually, they are hearing more of this now because of a number of reasons. One of them being that uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, uh, it brought out these findings uh, which were released to the, 20, to the COP21, this was in 2015, that changes that we are witnessing are evidence that, I mean, climate change is unequivocal. I mean, we, there's no more doubt about it. I mean, whoever is doubting is, you know, is lost. Um, and secondly, that the changes were happening faster than we first thought. You know, the evidence we've always had all along pointed to the fact that, um, you know, uh, this thing will happen this way, you know, the models were still um, uh, conflicting each other and so on. And so nobody was really, so we were hanging in that uh, uncertainty and hoping that things would be better. But that was now the real data and scientific evidence that things will actually happen much faster than we, we thought. And then developing countries, particularly those in Africa, are so vulnerable and are going to be hit the hardest, okay? Despite the fact that uh, they contributed the least uh, and therefore this need to take action. So this kind of debate jolted world leaders congregating in, um, you know, um, around that COP, uh, COP21 uh, in Paris uh, to come up with this uh, um, Paris Agreement. Um, and uh, the Paris Agreement is the first that brought all countries together, all countries of the world together to sign on one same thing, you know, uh, an agreement that does not say the, you know, the rich must do this and the poor must do this. No, no, no. Everybody is going to do the same thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, bound by these so-called uh, nationally determined contributions. Mm -hmm. And every country uh, was given time, they sat down and they produced their uh, first uh, NDCs, which take five years and then they're reviewed. So the first ones were reviewed last year uh, or rather in 2020. And so now we are on the second uh, uh, NDCs, you know, which have been revised to make them more ambitious, you know, at reducing uh, those effects. So I think that's why it's been, it's, it's been uh, hyped so much at this particular point. So when you say NDC, what does that mean? Yeah, uh, the nationally determined contributions. Mm -hmm. That is the commitment by a country on what they are able to do within their means. Uh, and also laying out what they, they would like to do, but they do not have the resources. So if anyone else wanna help, this is the full list of what we can do if we have all the resources. And then that list is revised every five years. Uh, and it's made more ambitious. Like Kenya's first NDC aimed to reduce uh, <clears throat> carbon emissions uh, by 30%. But when they revised it, it went to 32%. So now we are looking at 32%. So when you look at all those countries and the NDCs that they have committed, <clears throat> do you see similarities across countries? Um, what are those main issues that countries want to focus on, especially carbon emission, you know? Uh, 
what I can say is uh, I've not done that research myself, looking at, uh, you know, all those NDCs uh, to pull out that. But what I've read, analysis I've read from those who've done it, uh, it all points to one, the fact that all those NDCs put together do not yield a, a significant enough commitment to take us to a safe place. They are still below par. I mean, we can only reduce by maybe 40, 45% of uh, you know, uh, what we need to reduce if we are to avoid uh, the catastrophe. That is, the, you know, we are, we are all aspiring at two degrees, yeah? But we are urged to do better and achieve 1.5 degrees centigrade. Okay, so those commitments put together cannot achieve that still. We are still in the 4.5% and so on. So countries need to do better than that. Yeah. 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 And I think it's a commitment of resources, right? Yeah, Um, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I said earlier, um, every country has put all that it says needs to be done for them to achieve the ambition, however low it is. Yeah. And on that list, like Kenya says, they can only fund 12% of those wish to do things, you know, and uh, they urge the rest of the world to put in any help from the richer countries and so on to meet the rest of the, of the budget. Yeah. Wow. And the work continues. So... I'm telling you. <laughs> You've led many projects focusing on climate change adaptation um, in semi-arid economies. So first of all, you know, you talk to us about climate change. Now you've done climate change adaptation. So that's something I would want you to describe to us what that looks like. And then you've done this in semi-arid economies. What are those economies, right? And what, what is the impact of climate change on those economies? Okay. Yeah, um, as you rightly put it, um, climate change adaptation uh, <clears throat> is a term commonly used. Um, there, you know, we know that uh, whatever we do, even if we stopped running all vehicles today, as we did when COVID was at its peak, uh, we will not achieve the kind of reduction expected. Okay? Wow. Uh, so, and like I said, with what is in the atmosphere already, the warming that is happening and is bound to happen will definitely uh, condemn the rest of the uh, underprivileged world uh, to those harsh conditions. They will need to adapt. Therefore. They will need to uh, do things to keep surviving. So, those things that you need to do to keep afloat mm-hmm. is what I may want to loosely call adaptation. Uh, for example, I mentioned uh, uh, <clears throat> increasing the number of goats maybe in, uh, in, in, in the Northern Kenya as opposed to cattle because cattle are not very resistant at higher temperatures. Temperatures above that one degrees has been proven. Uh, more goats and sheep can survive there more than cattle. So that's one way of doing it. Number two, you can also get cattle that are very resistant in Uganda, like the Ankole uh, cattle. If you can get those, I've not tried, but 
perhaps if you adopted some of those in Kenya, maybe through breeding and so on, uh, our communities in Kenya could uh, be able to um, move to such. Or uh, introducing uh, drought resistant uh, varieties uh, like uh, <coughs> green grams, <coughs> we call them dengu. Mm -hmm. um, or uh, let me say uh, groundnuts, so that train people to understand that you can actually stop experimenting with maize every year like our folks always do, because it's a step of food. Even when it's failing, they can see it's like an onion thing and they still want to insist on planting maize. When they can actually plant groundnuts or plant uh, uh, chickpeas or plant uh, uh, green grams and take that to the market, earn money and then buy maize. Simple trick, but I mean, people believe they must see maize on their own farm even when it is in an area where you are not supposed to be producing it. So that's one of the things we've seen. So um, the semi-arid economies I've worked in, and actually most of my work while I was at IDRC covered, <clears throat> I'm talking about uh, a lot of the Eastern and Southern Africa. I'm talking about the Sahel of Africa, which covers you know, the entire East to West, you know, um, and uh, a significant part of Asia, which, um, you know, um, I covered countries like uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, uh, all the way to Nepal, India. We had projects in, uh, in, in, in Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, and so on. So um, the kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of lessons that um, I could pull out quickly, you know, is that Climate change will have varying and negative impacts, but similarly present uh, or rather present a range of opportunities. It's not just doom, it is presenting certain opportunities. So this is what <clears throat> research actually pulled out. And we, we, for example, in Kenya, I'll give an example. We visited, um, there's a farmer called, uh, called Dr. Gitawa. He's a retired vet who used to see animals which are dying. You know, the people in Northern Kenya wait until the animals are about to die is when they're now trying to frantically look for market to sell them, you know? Because, you know, people are sticking on their animals. They want to keep their animals and be known to be rich when they point at the animals, even when they're about to die. So um, he used to see that happening and thought this is a good business opportunity. So somebody brings very emaciated animals and sells for as, as low as 5,000, 8,000 Kenya shillings, which is about how much? $50? Yeah. 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 So, um, so he buys those and then fattens them <clears throat> using his uh, vet uh, experience and training. So he makes the right food rations and puts in soya beans and all this maize and stuff like that. And then the, the cows are fed. And then within weeks, six weeks, a cow is three times its weight. They're heavy and they're ready to go to the market. And he sells the same at between uh, 50 and 70,000 Kenya shillings. You know? Wow. 
So that is like, uh, is that 10 times or 100 times? 10 times. Eh? Yeah, 10 times, yeah. 10 times the price, yeah. So, and that is an opportunity this guy got to do business. So it's an opportunity for some people who see the sense. And uh, it's also um, a, a, a bad thing for others. Then another thing we learned was that droughts may get worse in some of the areas, while others will experience significant um, downpours, you know. Uh, heavy flooding is expected in many areas. Like in Kenya, we might just have, it doesn't mean that if the temperature increase will be so much that the whole of Kenya will be will be roasting. No, some areas will receive uh, heavy rainfall. Some areas will, of course, uh, have uh, challenges um, getting uh, the water. And so the, the, we expect to see increased cases of migration and migration, we've already proven it, it's happening. And then, of course, uh, there are opportunities also in wildlife conservancies. Uh, so people can actually, uh, you, you know, you can get a permit from Kenya Wildlife Service and then you are, you are allocated uh, some animals, uh, you know, to keep on your, on, your, on your conservancy. And that is happening. We already have people doing that in Laikipia, most of Laikipia County. Uh, that is happening. So those are some of the lessons we learned. There'll be challenges, but there'll also be opportunities. So it is upon one to discover where are the opportunities and then harness them and also where are the challenges and also see how best to adapt to the circumstances. Because solutions are there, they've been tested. The challenge is how to scale them up. Wow. Are there any, anything, anything being done to help, especially with the farmers or the livestock holders, um, because we know that cows are a representation of wealth. Um, you know, so those, some of those cultural dispositions, do you think there's anything being done to help with that? I think that is a challenge, um, particularly with the, with the old guys. Um, with the youth, we are beginning to see a difference. Even those in the north of the country, I mean, we are beginning to see a significant difference. A lot of them are adapting uh, to some of the agricultural methods being introduced to them. Uh, recently, there was a whole uh, pullout in the local dailies uh, showing how uh, certain ladies who are university uh, graduates who are just languishing at home decided to take on this farming thing. And so they worked with some NGOs there to set up some farms and uh, they're producing huge watermelons and onions and you know tomatoes and stuff like that and um, at the same time they're also having uh, you know beehives being set up and so on so there's that kind of thing they're beginning to take on the bull by the horns um, in their own localities um, you know as opposed to coming to the cities to look for white collar jobs yeah that's a great initiative um, because, you know, that kind of migration, urban, rural, <laughs> has yeah. not really served the urban no. cities much no. um, and has taken yeah. away from the rural areas too. Yeah. So I'm glad to see such um, kinds of um, inventions uh, with this work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a paper that you, you looked at or you focused on that examined the uptake and use of climate information services to enhance agriculture. We were just talking about farming. 
and food production among smallholder farmers in eastern central eastern eastern and southern Africa region. So tell us more about that project and what you gleaned from that. Yeah, actually, one thing we learned is that uh, uh, meteorological data that previously was never really uh, disseminated well to the farmers, other than on uh, national radio stations, when they say it will rain here and there, uh, you know, just mentioning names of districts, you know, uh, instead of narrowing down to the location where the farmers are, are best, just because the technology those days was not that specific. But right now, uh, things have improved and it's narrowing. You know, you can now do at a much smaller precision uh, or, or rather um, uh, a, a small area can be targeted, you know, like a kilometer by a kilometer, you know, they can now be able to give you uh, uh, that information. You even have apps that have been developed, which farmers are now using on their phones uh, to be able to, um, to, to get that degree of detail of uh, met information to inform their planning and activities uh, for the farm, for the next seasons. So we actually um, learned that and we had various experiences here in Kenya where we had even the Kenya Met Department joining in uh, and you, uh, you know, working with traditional um, forecasters. You know, those African forecasters, they use uh, insects and birds and uh, all manner of things to tell. And uh, their predictions actually come to 80 to 90% correct, as opposed to what the Met Department is giving. So um, they call them rainmakers. So those guys um, have been well known for that. And so that is one thing we learned. It's important for farmers to use climate information uh, that is credible, that is sourced from uh, the Met Department to plan for their local activities. And that is something that uh, those who are using it more or less get it right. I mean, they get 90% and above of uh, the, 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 what they plant and uh, so on. Um, they, if the prediction is that don't plant anything, then don't. Just or plant something else that can withstand that condition. And you know, they'll be able to tell you this season, don't plant maize, don't plant beans, don't plant that, but you can do sorghum and uh, pigeon peas, you know, that kind of thing. And then maybe next year, uh, same season, same time, you, now you can do maize because the prediction will be favorable. So people who've done that have really benefited. So that if maize passes, good. If, if not, they'll plant something that they will take to the market and get the money, then buy maize from someone else who produced it uh, easily. Then the other thing we learned uh, from that study is that um, uh, building capacity of the farmers is key, and particularly the women, because the women have always been left behind when it comes to people going to attend the baraza to be given uh, a bottle of soda to take after the meeting and so on. So they keep the women away. The women keep on the farm with the kids. The, 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 the wazes, you know, the old men are the ones who go to the, to, to the meetings. So we came up with this uh, finding that, uh, you know, if you trained women, you get much, much more uh, returns because that knowledge 
the probability of it being implemented on the farm is much higher because they are the ones who till the land uh, mainly. Then the other one is, of course, getting um, uh, sh- uh, uh, and this is actually a government thing, making sure that the advisories, the climate advisories, reach the farmers on time and translated in the language that they understand best and also telling them um, what else they can do other than just farm stuff. You know, they, they, they can be told uh, maybe there'll be a flood uh, in this area, so schools in this area will be closed. All kids in school A can go to school B. Uh, for a week or so and then come back, you know, that kind of thing, so that it becomes a broad advisory, but coming from the match department. So um, that and a vast of other enabling environment uh, uh, kind of elements came out. And um, yeah. I would encourage people to read that paper more. Awesome. And I'm just wondering, you know, you talked about the the traditional meteorological people who are there, were they involved at all? Like, did you want them to also participate in that? Because, you know, the communities believe them, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Actually, it was uh, part of the design of the project. It was funded by uh, IDRC, uh, jointly with DFID at that time. Now it is FCDO, um, the government of the... (laughs) United Kingdom, um, the, the, because, you know, we, we said we can only win this war by involving these guys. Because in that area, or, or, or let me say in those areas down in the villages, people really trust in these rainmakers and they go to them for advice on when to plant and when the rain is coming and so on. So we said why not then involve these guys? We do a joint study. We be humble enough to accept what they bring as their forecasts, and we document it in uh, modern ways, and then uh, give these guys a chance to fly in an aircraft and see the clouds because they believe their gods are in these clouds, okay? And then just show them that there's actually no no one up there, it's just clouds, okay? So <clears throat> so there, we actually budgeted for t- air tickets. We flew about four, four of those men. Uh, they're leaders, they're, they're lead uh, meteorologists. And uh, so they flew from Kisumu to Nairobi uh, to attend a workshop where we were launching this project. And then they were flown back. So during the flight, of course, they were marveling at uh, you know everything you know everything is first time for them and they are wondering and so they were being shown the clouds just this white stuff you can't see nothing through and uh, yeah so it took that to make them open up their shrines so we have shrines in uh, it's a place after Maseno in Kenya if you know it the shrines are somewhere there it's uh, like a small forest where no woman steps only men are allowed. And not just any common men. I mean, they have to be this age of men and so on. And uh, so all that was demystified by this project after doing all those flights. And so then the experiments were done because they used to go in there and blow into some port and then 
they see the, you know, the suds coming out of the soapy water because some leaves have that soapy effect. And so when they see the bubbles blowing, the physicists on our team are seeing atmospheric pressure balances and so on. So they, they can even measure the size of those suds. They're able to explain it from physics. Then we had botanists on board who were able to explain things from their botanical way. We had metologists, we had uh, uh, anthropologists. There was a whole team of people studying all manner of things. And we all came to a conclusion that the science behind what they were doing is well known. I mean, it can be explained. It's just that no one has published it. And so somebody needs to purposely go and you know, study that and they'll be able to prove them using some laws of physics and so on. So it was quite amazing. Wow. And uh, our minister, Judy Wahungu at that time was the first woman to step there, um, escorted by, uh, of course, project funders and so on who had turned up for that meeting. Yeah. That's incredible. Yes, I, I, I think it's awesome when we include these individuals who are well-respected in the communities, and I'm glad their project undertook that process. So very quickly, what is that now relationship between climate and development, now that we've seen how it can impact um, and the, the challenges that people are experiencing from a de developmental perspective, and why is this important? Yeah, I think the relationship is uh, quite clear. You see, uh, Change in climate is impacting on so many things. Look at all parameters that define development. Um, you know, all efforts to eradicate poverty and disease and so on. Uh, if you look at all those factors, you find that each of them is being hit by climate change. Look at, uh, for example, the shifting disease patterns because of climate. Look at, uh, uh, you know, just the, 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 the warming, how it's affecting food production because of uh, uh, drying up soils, um, because of evaporation laws, um, virtually all these uh, sectors are affected. If agriculture is affected, you know what happens. Food won't get on the market. Everybody will be starving there and so on. People will be so sick in hospitals. Uh, doctors cannot get there, etc., etc. So there is that interconnectedness. But at the same time, development is also contributing to climate change, as we all know. I mean, it's all this industrialization and um, our comfort uh, driving around and so on that is causing uh, climate to change. So there is that, um, you know, chicken and egg situation that uh, we tend to see um, uh, here. And um, I mean, it's with that knowledge, I mean, I, I think we have enough guidance so far from uh, what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has found and what is coming out of the, all these negotiations that happen every year. There's always disagreement on this and that, but the broad message is that climate is changing and people need to do something right? to either adapt or to cut emissions or you know to do whatever else. Like now we are talking about uh, switching to electric vehicles. Uh, maybe you guys in the States are already having those. Some of us here, we've, we've not seen one. <laughs> but I want to believe that very soon, that will be the order of the day here. Yeah. Awesome. So we're going to shift focus a little bit and now look at um, 
sustainable energy. And this is a term that is quite popular. And I want us to learn more about it. Um, it's sustainable energy is very important in, in growing economies, especially in our resource limited countries. What, what do we need to know about sustainable energy? Are there different types of sustainable energy? Thank you. Um, energy is said to be sustainable if it meets the needs of the present without compromising the, 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 the ability of the future generations to meet their own needs, you know. Uh, just from the, the, the sustainable development definition, I mean, it's, it applies to the energy here. So uh, what is this that we need to do to be able to consume available sources of energy in ways that our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will still have uh, some left for them to spend and also leave some for their own great-great-grandchildren. So that is really what um, the, the simple definition would be. And uh, of course, most definitions of uh, sustainable energy include uh, consideration of environmental aspects. Um, such as greenhouse gas emissions and social and economic aspects, such as energy poverty, you know. So those are the kind of things we tend to bring in. So you talk of a, uh, a benefit you're going to get out of it, but also talk about the, 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 the other elements of, um, you know, particularly on the social and economic side of things. Um, and sustainable energy can be defined uh, as a form of energy also that can be utilized again and again and again without putting a source of that energy in danger of getting depleted, expired, or vanished because some, some energy sources are being said to be you know, on their way out. Look at uh, governments like the Kingdom of you know, the Emirates. Huh? Mm -hmm. They saw this long time ago in Dubai and they decided to invest in alternative, uh, you know, economic things. And now Dubai is, uh, you know, is a tourist heaven, They're taking everyone on earth there. So their biggest income earner is tourism. And uh, they, it's hoped that that will continue. Somebody keeps telling them in 12 years time, their oil will be wiped out. So that's why they focused more on, let's keep building and building and encouraging tourists to come into our country. And, uh, you, you know, types of uh, sustainable energy, of course, include uh, geothermal energy, like, as you know, here in Kenya, we have uh, a good amount of our electricity coming from geothermal, uh, wind power, solar power, hydropower, and bioenergy, you know, all those are examples of uh, energy that is um, uh, sustainable. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so we know that there's sustainable energy, but then there's also renewable energy. What is different about those two? Yeah, so renewable energy is, you know, like uh, like from the sun, uh, you know, the like solar energy, like wind energy, you know, this, it is, I mean, you cannot deplete it. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's this is endless and it's not uh, polluting, it's not uh, having any other impacts uh, on, on man that is, uh, you know, um, created by its use. So that is renewable energy. So, uh, and sustainable energy, you know, like uh, there are some definitions, some writers have said, even uh, uh, 
fossil fuel is, is, is sustainable in some places because they have a lot of it and they believe it is even if a uh, hundred thousand generations come they will never deplete it so some of them say that is also sustainable but uh, from the development side we try to say <clears throat> uh, energy that is uh, can be used and uh, reused without uh, damage to the environment without any uh, impact on the environment so if you can achieve that with any other fuel uh, in the course of use probably you may want to call it also sustainable but as you know it's uh, we've tried to restrict for the sake of sustainable development we try to restrict it to what is for example um, being offered by renewable energies yeah so we now have you know again resource limited countries that are considered growing economies so how is this re, um, sustainable energy being realized in this growing economy? Uh, I think one of the, the uh, you know, I can give a number of them. Um, one is that uh, policy is key. Without government leadership uh, in a lot of these countries, uh, you cannot achieve much. So policy change, uh, recognizing the need to aggressively uh, move and domesticate um, a lot of these um, uh, renewable and sustainable energies would be, you know, it would be difficult. So that is one. Number two is planning. Planning really matters and planning is essential to be able to promote um, uh, regional energy integration because you can imagine like now Ethiopia is going to be the leader in the region producing significant amounts of energy when their big dam is you know, commissioned. Uh, it will be more than they need. So Kenya is likely to be positioning itself to tap into that when, when that need comes up. And not only Kenya, even other countries in the, in the surrounding, Sudan and so on. So they should be able to tap into that. So there is need for planning that recognizes the need to share um, with others uh, we, when we have this political integration uh, happening. Then thirdly, um, you know, markets also matter. Uh, the market mechanisms need to be developed uh, to present uh, the world's poor with cleaner, better energy options, because most of the time we tend to leave behind the poor when we are discussing, um, you know, energy solutions, energy options or scaling up and so on. We sit in those offices and you know plan uh, how things are going to move, and we ignore where the real uh, 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 the common man is. You know. Um, then also the other thing is finance. Finance has always been a big problem when it comes to scaling up um, technology uh, in general, but particularly energy technologies. Uh, so there's need to break free from um, its uh, conservative strategy uh, of funding traditional energy projects. You know, governments tend to fund just electricity. Uh, you know, as grid, we are going to extend the tree, the grid from point A to point B. You know, covering all those towns, but they leave the real user down there. Who could have benefited significantly from maybe a mini grid 
that uses a few solar cells somewhere and serves the small community. So people keep on suffering here, hoping that one day the grid will pass by when actually their needs could have been met by a simple solar panel that can be able to connect five, six homes, you know, and you achieve the same goal. So it, it's those kind of things. Um, and governments can afford to sort those small things as opposed to waiting for the big monies that they will need to bring the grid, uh, you know, to pass by. So those are some of the things. And then of course, my, our mindsets need to uh, change. Um, we need to view energy systems from a bottom up and also from top down, which is the same thing I've been saying. Um, <clears throat> governments at the top hardly listen to or hardly involve the bottom when it comes to making some of these critical decisions. So they sit and believe that what government will prescribe is the best, but they forget input like what I've just told you. Uh, if one or two villages come up with, an, with the idea of having a mini grid, um, you know, can the government give the money through constituency development fund or from whatever? But politicians will just come and pump into them that power is going to come. Just vote me in and the grid will pass here, you know. And when the money comes, they eat it forever and then they say, oh, your project will come another during another term, you know. So it's those kind of things. Then cooperation, of course. Uh, is key even among um, the private sector uh, and government in scaling up some of these things. Because government sector, if given the right operating environment, they're able to finance some of these things, which the government has failed to do. But the government tends to stifle uh, entry by the private sector into a lot of uh, these spaces. And so they lose out on that opportunity. And finally, of course, Politics matters very much, particularly here in Africa, in our countries, including Kenya here, where um, when one innovative person brings a good idea, like the mini grids, he'll be fought very hard by uh, an area politician uh, who is in parliament, who feels this guy is trying to impress uh, these guys, therefore investing in future votes to remove the other guy. So it is, it's, it's a very tricky thing. A lot of projects have failed to uh, go through because of political uh, interference like that. So there's need to, right from the planning stage, for one to find how best to massage all the parties, uh, you know, to realize that there's nothing politics here. This is just development coming in to help the people, yeah. And so to finish up and to, um, you know, be able to look at this from sort of an overarching perspective, you know, we've seen climate and its impact on development and vice versa, the importance of sustainable energy in growing economies. But now there's the green and circular economy, right? How do all this interrelate? And what is that green and circular economy and why do we need to know more about that? Uh, thank you very much, Caroline. Um, the uh, concept of the green economy, uh, you know, came up because of the name green, which has always been used uh, in different circles to mean uh, environmentally sober or environmentally uh, conscious, um, if I may uh, use that term. And um, 
So when we talk about an economy, we are talking about a big thing. I mean, bigger than yourself, maybe a country. Yeah. So if a country where goods are being produced and sold and, uh, you know, there's a lot of economic activity happening, we, when, when it is green, it is said to be uh, all this production is happening with minimum environmental risk and also ecological uh, 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 soundness. We also consider it to be socially uh, upright. It's upholding uh, proper labor rights, uh, human rights conditions, people are working in a very clean environment and, uh, uh, you know, nobody's being uh, undermined. I mean, nobody's rights are being uh, stumbled on, even as, I, uh, you know, as, they, as they produce those goods. And at the same time, also, the, the, the producers of these goods are assumed to be working uh, towards their profits, but also making sure that they're being governed in ways that are proper. Uh, you know, obeying the laws, there's no co corruption and all these kinds of things that, uh, you know, come in. So a green economy to me is that kind of an economy. And, um, but circular economy came in much later, uh, <clears throat> particularly by the resource efficiency uh, uh, considerations, whereby instead of you know, overusing stuff, or instead of throwing out stuff that has been used, if it is something that can be reused, if it is something that can be uh, collected, cleaned and reused, or perhaps recycled, uh, you know, then why not recycle it? So we have uh, opportunities for business in some of those uh, situations whereby someone else can come and collect on your behalf, then go and uh, clean that and maybe sell it to somebody else who will use that for something else. You know, some people cut some things and make them into flower pots, you know, something uh, instead of just throwing that away. But there are others which can be melted and, uh, you know, blown out into something else, uh, like in the case of glass or in the case of plastics and so on. Um, and those have been able to provide opportunities for some small and medium scale enterprises that have come up and are creating jobs for others. So a circular economy is that kind of economy whereby you can reuse stuff or recycle and you know, be able to live in a proper environment. So it just depends on what kind of systems and regulations, policies exist in that economy that may require that to happen um, because like here in Africa, I've not seen countries where we have a lot of discipline, um, you know, unless there is, you know, the, the carrot and stick is really working um, to ensure that the circular economy uh, functions. You can put containers there, clearly labeled, uh, you know, put this here, put bio waste here, put bottles here, put tins here, but no one looks at that. I mean, they just dump anything anywhere. Uh, even just down there on the grass next to those containers. So we need to um, educate people of the importance of circularity. We need to educate the masses on why they need to be responsible and uh, what kind of opportunities are available uh, in the course of doing that. There could be jobs being thrown uh, down the drain. Yes. 
And it, it's interesting you, you talk about how sometimes it's difficult to change people's habits and we know behavior is never static, but people do tend to, to hang on to what they're used to doing all the time. And I remember there's a time in Kenya when um, there were consequences for throwing trash on, on the road and, you know, cigarette butts and, and people followed that, you know. Yeah. So probably, and now we don't even use plastic, right? There no. are consequences for that. So I think it's possible to teach people that in theory. Sort of circular. In, in theory. theory, we have plastics all over. I mean. Right, <laughs> right, right. So I think the, the, the idea of recycling is something that we need to continuously um, inject in the community, if you will, and sensitize them to that. It's going to take time before people um, you know, adapt to that. But uh, like you said, if there's an attached an attached benefit, like, oh, this will create jobs, you know. We need people to come and collect this trash. We need people to come and help recycle these this yeah. plastics and things of that nature. Probably that would help change the, the you know, some of these behaviors and, and make people more conscious about um, that, what the green economy, if you will, or the circular economy, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me today. And, you know, there might be people who would be interested in getting in touch with you. Um, do you have an email address that they would be able to contact you on? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm happy to uh, take this conversation further. I mean, if uh, there's anyone interested and I think you can share my email, feel free to share my, my phone contacts and my email too. Yeah. Oh, great, great. Uh, but while we are here and as they are listening to you, do you want to say your email address? Uh, maybe shout yeah. it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's evans.kitui at gmail.com. Okay, so E-V-A-A-N-S dot K-I-T-U-I-I at gmail.com. Exactly. Um, Yes, there's, a, there's still so much that we didn't even cover, uh, but there's a lot that, you know, we'll come back for a part two um, and follow up on any questions that come up and any other information that we were not able to cover today. But I'd thank you for taking the time to speak to me um, and also to say that, you know, we hope that soon we'll be able to really undertake this um, circular economies and the green economy and renewable energy and be conscious about the impact of climate change on development, especially in, in the continent and in other resource-limited regions. Thank you very much, Caroline. Thanks for hosting me. Yeah. Yes. Look forward to talking again. Thank you. And to everyone else, thank you for joining us today. And I look forward to having you on another episode of Public Health Music. <laughs>